Hello and welcome to BioCentury This Week Special Edition. I'm Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief at BioCentury, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Anne Hetherington, who is Head of the Data Sciences Institute at Takeda, meaning Anne has oversight of all patient-level data within R&D. Anne and I have got to know each other a little bit through the COVID R&D Alliance, which is a consortium of about 20 farmers now who have gotten together during COVID-19 to expedite the creation of countermeasures. And today we're going to talk about data sharing and what COVID R&D is doing on this front and how that's completely different from basically everything in terms of data that was done beforehand, as far as I can see. So Anne, maybe we can start with this. Within this alliance, what was the germ? How did it get started to have this idea to share data? And why is it so important? So first of all, good morning, Simone. Thank you for inviting me to talk to you today about this. It's an area that I'm passionate about and have spent many, many hours on over the last number of months. And it has been a real pleasure to work within the COVID R&D Alliance over the last number, since actually mid-March. But to your question, how did it get started? Well, the actual COVID R&D Alliance started mid-March as a germ of an idea by, as I like to say it, a couple of old friends, essentially. R&D leaders across pharma is a network. They're their peers, they're their colleagues. And a number of them, prompted by the head of R&D at Takeda, Andy Plump, got together to really think about what are we going to do in the face of this pandemic? Very, very early in those discussions, the need to share data became evident. And it wasn't just share data, it's share information, share principles, share ideas about what are we doing. So when we say sharing data, sharing data is just actually a subset of sharing information. And so very, very early on, as in the alliance was coming together, Andy Plump approached me and said, I think data sharing is very important to this alliance. Would you like to be involved? And the next thing you know, I am now leading a work stream of the 20 pharma with about 10 companies really committed. And we've now spawned out to four work streams with different emphasis, and we can go into what each of those are. But it has been an exciting journey. But it really went back to that original principle of if we're going to work together, the key to it all is information and data sharing. And that's how that started. So what level of data are you sharing in the Alliance? Well, in the first instance, as I say, if we think about information sharing, right, right. and that's really, what are you doing in your companies? How are your interactions with agencies going on? How are you working with NIH? What are you thinking about? And even before we get to data, that level of information sharing is unprecedented in and of itself. And then when we get to data, in the first instance, the first thing we did was to scar the internet for any patient level data we could find for COVID patients. Because if you think back to mid-March, we were really just thinking about designing the first clinical trials. The very early companies like Gilead had already started clinical trials, but not many by this stage. And so we were thinking about how do we optimally design clinical trials? What do we do? So we needed data. This is a brand new disease. And we were trying to design trials at the same time as understand the disease. 
And so the first incarnation was where we gathered up any level of data we could about to help us understand the disease. But as we matured, we started realizing that that had limited value because it had limited ability to pull it together, even though we had a really fantastic data sciences group helping us with that. We then realized that real world data was really where we needed to focus in terms of understanding the disease. And then very soon thereafter, we had a bit of an epiphany and we realized that actually the true value of this would be sharing clinical trial data as it emerges in a construct similar to what hasn't been done before. And so now the way we're looking at it is clinical trial data, both at the patient level and at the summary level data, and then also real world data. So they're the three areas that we've been focused on. And then just very recently, we've kicked off a fourth arm, which is around vaccines. And so for vaccines, we're still at the stage of information sharing. And so we're still at that stage for vaccines, but we hope to move into more data sharing shortly. So let me just ask you something. You said you scoured the internet, and we all know if you read it on the internet, it must be true, right? So what level of scrutiny do you have bars for the kind of data that you will include in your analysis versus things that aren't of quality? One of the things that we always talk about with databases and so on is garbage in, garbage out. And is the same true for real world data? What's the sort of scrutiny and how do you create in an emerging disease some kind of level of standard for what counts? That is a phenomenally important question, Simone. And disregarding that question has grabbed a couple of headlines recently. In the very early portion, back to the March, if you cast your mind back to March, we termed it exploratory data because, to your point, the data that we were gathering at that stage truly wasn't high quality. We were just looking at trends. We were pulling it out of publications, out of appendices, and we termed it exploratory data every time we talked about it. And so we were very, very aware that those data, all it could give us were trends and ideas. And as I said, we actually quickly moved on from that because we realized the quality wasn't there to do any of the things that we might wish to do. But it was very, very helpful in those moments when other data really wasn't available. So we packaged that up and set it aside. And we then moved our efforts to real-world data. And the real-world data is emerging in all sorts of places at the minute. We brought together a group of experts across its kind of four key companies um, as part of the COVID R&D Alliance. These people are experts at the methods around the use of real-world data. And we brought them together and they have been doing, again, something unprecedented. They have spent the time, they spent a couple of months doing exactly what you commented on. They have spent a number of time reviewing what data they could access, what databases provided them the highest quality data, what are the definitions of the various endpoints. If you say someone's in ICU, how do you define that from a real-world data set? How do you define a respiratory illness in a real-world data set? And so on. So they came up with a common list of definitions. They then thought about how do you even define that someone has COVID? And they did a lot of work looking at ICD-10 codes coupled with PCR testing. And they actually find quite a bit of discrepancy in those, interestingly. And so they have spent a lot of time focusing on the definitions, the methods, and the quality. 
And then the next step was defining the cohort. How would they define a cohort of ICU patients? How would they define a cohort of hospitalized patients? So they have really taken a very, very rigorous approach because once you've laid those foundations, it's much easier to answer the specific questions that you might have. And I would also say that we've been very, very fortunate that there's been a huge movement, not just within our group, COVID R&D Alliance, but across the ecosystem around the use of real world data at this time, particularly the Reagan Udall Foundation, which has been overseen by Amy Abernethy from the FDA. And a number of us have joined that group and that has really acted as an anchor for us to make sure that what we're doing is in step with what the rest of the ecosystem is doing. So I really think this is a real opportunity for all of us in the ecosystem to demonstrate the utility of real world data when it's done correctly. And so if I understand correctly, you're creating this from the ground up. What kind of technical infrastructure are you building or did you need to build? How do you actually go about doing this? Data exists in all kinds of different places. Can you just tell us at whatever level is appropriate how you channel that all in? It's interesting, Simone, you ask that question because everybody thinks it's about the technology. But actually, in my learning in this is is actually about the behaviors. So everybody immediately goes to technology. What's the database? What's the method? What's the system we're using? But actually, if you don't have agreement up front on this is something we want to do, we are going to change our paradigm. We're going to challenge the leaders in our individual companies to challenge them to say that data sharing is what we want to do. That we are going to rely on the work that was done by a so-called competitor company for some of our inferences. The behaviors are actually infinitely more important than the technology. And I'll come to the technology because actually we have the technology solutions, they exist. And in fact, the technology solutions have existed in most cases for a very long time, but we really have not had the behaviors to go along with that. And actually what COVID has done is it's given us an opportunity to bring our best selves to the problem and to really think about what can we collectively do? What behaviors do we need to change? And so what I would say, we have Zoom calls, like three Zoom calls a week in different guises for these different work streams. And I now look at a screen, we all know what Zoom calls look like. You look like a panel of people, as I'm looking at you now. And now these people, I know their voices. I know exactly who they are. I know if they have a different background because the behaviors we've generated here, we're building trust, we're building transparency. And we are building a recognition that actually together we can potentially do much more than we could do on our own. Now, that's not to say we're putting aside all areas of what is important within a company. Of course, we are very, very respectful of what happens within a company. But we recognize that actually what we can share is probably a lot more than what we have done previously, particularly at this time. So the behaviors precede the technology in my book. And I think we have... Over the course of the last few months, I think we've done a really, really good job at building the behaviors and the trust amongst the companies to enable the technology now to step forward and do what it needs to do. So I'm going to come back to a couple of those really important points that you raised. But I do want to ask, first of all, can you just give an example of 
the kind of data that you can get or have already gotten maybe from the data sharing initiative, what that's actually translated to in terms of a clinical trial or how you would actually implement that? Yes. So I'm going to go to technology just as an interlude because it's important. The technology is available, but what we need to do is to bring the technology into what we want to do today. And then we also need the various data sharing and legal agreements in place. And so as we're working through all of that, the actual clinical trial data, we're still at a place of working through all of that. So the piece of data that's been really important to answer your particular question is around the real world data. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the real world data to answer your question. Because those data were available much earlier, a couple, three key companies came together to really start working on those data. And so specifically those data have enabled the companies within the Alliance to think about how do the different endpoints that are being used in the different trials compare? So what we really would like to get to is if company A got a trial started early on, and had a particular primary endpoint, we can use real world data to say, actually, this endpoint has this impact on these other endpoints. And we're able then to make the linkages across the different endpoints in a trial. But specifically, the work in the real world data space has helped inform the design of one of the master protocols that has come out of the COVID R&D Alliance and really helped refine the selection of the patient population in that study and really help define information around the duration of hospital stay in that study. Because as you're designing those trials, those level of details are really important. And so those data helped inform that. So they're really concrete examples as to how these data have informed. Uh, so you're using them to, let's say, help design and select endpoints? That's correct. Well, Right. So one thing that has come up quite a lot is the difference and need for not just summary level data, but patient level data. Why is it so important to have patient level data? That's a great question. Um, I have worked in quantitative analysis all my life and worked with summary level data, patient level data. I'm a clinical pharmacologist by training. It's really interesting to be sitting here talking about this today when my PhD many, many years ago was modeling of individual level data. Um, <laughs> it all comes back to it, the beginning, you know, it, it all it, comes back. It all comes back. Um, patient level data allows us to break down and understand different groups. So I'll actually give you an example. As part of the Alliance, we started thinking about what are the questions we could answer with the different types of data, real world data, summary level data, and patient level data. And I'm actually looking at a slide that we put together. And the one question that we need patient level data for, the question is, what are the biomarkers that characterize patients who are at high risk for ARDS or other complications? I just want to make clear that ARDS is acute respiratory distress syndrome, oh. which is the late stage inflammatory response that often leads to death. So just keep going, Anne. <laughs> there you right. go. Yeah, no, 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 you're absolutely right. Whenever you want to look at subsets of patients, so you want to look at risk factors for patients or you want to look at biomarkers. So we started to understand this disease a lot more, but we're still understanding it. And it's not just understanding the disease, it's understanding how a particular subset of a population respond to a particular drug. So the individual patient data allow us to look at those things. 
they allow us to see, are we able to have an early predictor of response in those patients that respond? Are we able to define a patient population that's at greater risk from COVID or maybe to adverse events from a particular drug? So the individual patient data allows you to subset groups to make inferences about what's happening to subsets of patients. So what's been the hardest part of getting to where you are so far? Well, anybody that knows me knows that I'm the least patient person in the world. <laughs> I, want, I really have such a drive for things to be done. So not only am I the least patient person in the world, I'm a real doer. I like stuff done. You put those things together, it's really not a great recipe for working in an entirely new environment. So the hardest thing has been realizing that just because you want it doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. And so the hardest part has been recognizing that in order for, say, willing companies to share data, that there are multiple steps that now you need to step through. And this is when you now have, I referred before to the behaviors, we now have the best behaviors in the world. You couldn't ask for a group of people more committed to this process. It's been phenomenal how committed people are to this process. And even with that cohort of people, there still is a process to get through. You still need to define what are the data elements that are important? What are the definitions that are important? What about the contracts? What about the legal agreements? What about the third party? How do we share between all these different people? And so it's not just working through that process, but actually defining that process. We've never done this before. And so actually we have been making up the process as we've gone along. And so to me, the most frustrating part has just been, in my mind, the time lost as we're doing this. Now, my logical self knows that this is really, really important. And how amazing to have people that are working through this. We have lawyers, we have data managers, we have programmers, we have statisticians, we have clinicians, we have every brand of person working on this and it's incredible. And even at that, it still takes time. But I really believe that once we lay this foundation and we figure out how to do this, this will serve us really well, not just for COVID, but also for potentially beyond COVID. And I think when we started this process, I don't think any of us had any idea how big this commitment was, how long we would all be in this State, how long this would last. Whereas every week was very important in March and it's still very important today. We realize that those weeks are in the context of maybe a year or 18 months or two years. And so it's become, I've had to tame back my impatience to some degree as we realize we're in this for the long haul because COVID is going to be around for the long haul. So I want to end with a couple of things looking forward like that. And, you know, obviously that kind of impatience that you talk about is actually a huge asset during a pandemic, right? <laughs> Without that, I, I don't think you could have gotten even a fraction of where you are. But two things have come up. One is the fact that, and let's be honest, it's mostly big farmers, not exclusively, but it's mostly what most people think of as big farmers who are part of the alliance. So creating that kind of infrastructure certainly means you've brought some sort of behemoths and you've sort of had all the right lawyers and so on. So my first question on that front is, will that 
translate into after COVID? Is that alliance, not just itself, but the agreements on data sharing, something that you anticipate could last? And if so, will it be disease by disease? Or you know, how do you see this playing out in the long term? So before I answer that, Simona, I want to be clear and give recognition to some of the partners beyond pharma in the alliance. We have amazing partnerships going back to the technology with some of the technology groups like Transcelerate. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is very much part of this. We are talking with NIH. We're also talking with Bibli. So I want to make sure we give credit to these incredible partners that we're working with who are facilitating a lot of the data sharing with us and actually acting as the technology platform. So I really want to give credit to those groups for stepping forward and being part of this with us. Again, when I'm on my Zoom calls and I'm looking around the table, there are people from all those partners on the Zoom call as well. So it's very much a partnership across all of those groups. But to your point, to actually answer your question, so we still feel that we're in the thick of it. We still haven't, I don't believe that we have yet obtained the full advantage about what we're doing. And I think that has yet to come. We will see those advantages in the next six to 12 months. But already we have started talking about, we really like this way of working. We really think this could be really beneficial to us in the longer term. And so there is a subgroup of us, led by one of my colleagues from UCB, that is thinking about what could this look like in the future? And actually we're starting the bones of maybe, let's call it a white paper or call to action, where we hope to have everybody involved as part of this white paper to really think about what could this look like after the fact. Now, I'm quite adamant here that we should have a couple of use cases where we can really demonstrate the value of this type of sharing. And even though we've demonstrated maybe a couple of those, I would like us to be able to demonstrate a few more. And so that has to happen first, I think. But we have already started drafting that white paper because we feel so passionately about it. Quite what it looks like to your point would it be disease by disease would it be i don't know the answer to that but what i do know is that there is a lot of discussion in this space we are having discussions through pharma we're having discussions with the nih there was a national academy workshop last year on data sharing so this is across the ecosystem and so covid r d alliance is just one part of that but we do want to put out a call for action to really think about what could this look like going forward. And we could totally transform the data sharing and transparency space overall. You could do it disease by disease, or it could be a totally different model, frankly, of drug development if you pushed it to its nth degree. As yet, we're not sure where we land in that space, but there is certainly a desire to learn from this and to see how we can take the silver linings of COVID and apply it to drug development beyond COVID. So my last question will really address that, which is, you know, the number of companies is remarkable, but it's still, let's call it in the tens, shall we? There's hundreds, if not thousands of biotechs across the ecosystem. Do you anticipate in your biggest vision and your biggest dream, do you anticipate that you might really be able to create a system-wide standard for sharing data and incentive 
for them to share data in a way that still protects their commercial viability and competitive edge, but still benefits broadly the acceleration of drug development. So first of all, as we are today, we have said from the very beginning, we are an open shop. This is not a closed club by no means. Anybody is welcome to join this club. And we have had new members join the Alliance over the course of the months. And so I want to be crystal clear, this is not a closed club and any voice is welcome and any voice is heard. And that's how we've been set up and it doesn't matter what size you are. But in terms of, you, you actually mentioned standards and actually I can hear someone from the Gates Foundation ringing in my head as you talk about standards. How data sharing would be greatly simplified if we had even better data standards than we do today. So that is one area. If we could have much greater data standardization, a standardization of data elements, that would, on a technical basis, greatly facilitate data sharing. But again, I go back to the behaviors versus the technical. I think we all have a belief that we can also write the technical, right? We can figure out the technical, we can figure out the agreements, the infrastructure, we can figure all that out. It takes time, but we can figure it out. On the behavioral side, what would we like to achieve? And I think where I'd like to see us go to is, is that we compete on our molecules, we compete in our antibodies, we compete on our vaccines. We compete at the level of the drug or the therapeutic and everything else we share. Personally, that is where I would like us to get to, whether we can or can't, we won't know yet. And so to that degree, it's really important that if we go down this route, that small companies, biotech companies are able to participate in that. And I'm going to give you one example. Before I joined Takeda, I worked at a tiny biotech for two years and I worked in a rare disease. Working in that rare disease, in, I worked as part of the data sharing consortium there, totally transformed the way I think about data sharing. And that tiny company that I worked for did more for data sharing than I had seen in my prior career. And they really, the company I worked for, really benefited by being part of this data sharing group. Not just from the data, but from the insights, from the knowledge of the group. So I do think it's possible for small companies to be part of that ecosystem and to really benefit from it and provide benefit to it as well. Thanks, Anne. This has been a great discussion. I think we could probably go on all day, but otherwise nothing else would get done, so we won't. Thank you for listening. This podcast and others can be found at biocentury.com, as well as via Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher.